that's the nature of politics in general. When you get political, you're going to catch the disease that comes with it, which is increased government growth and more control over people's lives. And that's why you, it's like a massive Frankensteinian experiment that will go completely wild when left unchecked. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 26. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Happy to have you back. Happy to be here. few notes first. Head on over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and you can click on my Facebook icon and join my Eating Liberty group, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Also, on the podcasts page, you'll find my Patreon button. I would appreciate any support you can give. Please do rate the show and leave a positive review on your favorite podcatcher. Ratings and reviews move the show up in the ranks and gets more people listening. And the more people listening are the more people who get cooking. And lastly, do please share the show on social media. The fight for 15 or some other arbitrary number as the minimum wage is a flaw in economic thinking. Wage is the price for labor. Everybody wants more money, but so few people really seem to understand what money is, or what prices are, or what is the business cycle. Economist Jeff Herberner's class, Austrian Economics Step-by-Step at Liberty Classroom, can help you bite back against your incomplete education from the state. Find his class and over 20 more with my affiliate link to the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. Bite back against the failed education from the state. When you subscribe through the bite back link, head over to the courses page and find the Austrian economics class. culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. My guest today is Jose Nino, a libertarian freelance writer based in Fort Collins, Colorado, and currently writing for Mises.org and the Advocates for Self-Government. We're speaking today about Jose's 2018 article published in Mises.org entitled, Get Ready for the War on Meat. He has since written a follow-up article, The Green New Deal Continues the War on Meat, also for Mises.org. Both articles will be linked on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 26. Welcome, Jose. Thank you for having me on, Dan. It's my pleasure. So before we get going, we're going to talk about your article, Get Ready for the War on Meat, that was published on Mises.org. Give us a little bit of uh, background about who Jose is and what you write about. Well, I um, am very libertarian. I got into this movement through Ron Paul. I was born in Venezuela, but came to the States when I was relatively young, um, in the late 90s, right before when the country went to crap and like um since i've been involved in the liberty movement um i have uh, gotten very involved with like ideas and also certain political groups my journey has brought me from being kind of like the typical libertarian like social media troll to like somewhat of a political 
operative and um, uh, investigative journalist on certain matters concerning economics, Second Amendment topics, and even occasional foreign policy articles. I've written all over the spectrum from a libertarian perspective. And yeah, the, the War on Meat um, was just a piece I wrote just detailing how certain institutions, especially governing institutions on, a, on an international scale, want to tax meat and want to uh, regulate it out of existence, just like pretty much every other human activity that we've seen since the progressive state came into being about a century ago. And they don't seem to be slowing down even one little teeny tiny bit. You you write a little bit in there, you talk about vegans, and I, I personally don't have a problem with a vegan diet because I think lentil dishes are just fine. Uh, my problem with vegans is the people and their politicization, politicization, tough to say, and frankly, religiosity for their well, they call it a diet. It seems like a way of life. Uh, what has your experience been in those terms with dealing with the vegan? I've actually had very good experiences with vegans because most of the vegans I've met are actually quite non-political. They just – and like you said, they engage in a lifestyle and they tend to keep to themselves. The problem is whenever you have like the more political vegans that obviously use the state to try to impose their will – on others that's when it's problematic i have no problem with the vegan diet it's um it's a a diet and lifestyle choice and the most effective diet is the one that you can stick to whether it's carnivore vegan low carb whatever i think the real discussion in this debate on the war on meat is should the state be involved in the regulation of meat or any food for that matter and i say no but unfortunately our political culture in the past century has instinctively turned to the state to solve every so-called problem. And more often than not, they create more problems because that's how government intervention works. And the law of unintended consequences cannot... is it, The law of unintended consequences is always going to shine whenever we have government intervention. Unfortunately, many people don't understand that. And... I think in these debates about like diets and whatnot um, and public policy is really a debate of whether the state should be in our kitchens and not. And as I said, we need a complete separation of food and state if we want to have both a healthy dieting experience and also a healthy civic society experience as well. You wrote that uh, one of the groups pushing for a vegan diet, and I I think there's a distinction to be made here that pushing for a not meat diet isn't the same as pushing for a vegan diet, but that may be a distinction without a difference. One of these groups, the Fair Animal Investment Risk and Return Company, they are no strangers to activism, and they are no fly-by-night company. Uh, add to them the very visible Cory Booker and his position on eliminating meat, uh, and we end up with a society, or at least a culture, who lives by sight bites and reading headlines to think that there's some real important big pressing issue here, and... You mentioned a minute ago, I think it's right, the unintended consequences. So you did mention a little bit about FAIR. Tell me about about FAIR. They seem seem to be less – well, no, that's not true. They seem to be much more than they appear to be. Their webpage, 
uh, it reads kind of nicely, but I suspect something else is up. Well, these groups, um, they've gained a lot of prominence um, the past few years because of um, it's become culturally in vogue to demonize meat. So it's going to naturally attract a lot of moneyed interests. And they like preside over actually like $4 trillion in assets. So as you said, they're, they're not a lightweight group. A lot of the, the food industry is massive. So like, even if like you like, quote unquote, eliminate meat, there's a ton of other industries like big sugar, big grains that are subsidized to the tune of billions that will likely hop on board this campaign. Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily exclusively vegans hopping on board in the strictest sense. There's some, obviously, that are very political, but it's a coalition of big food and their subsidiaries like sugar, grains, and busybody bureaucrats that just love controlling everything. Heck, they control sugar as well. They like to uh, put regulations on sugar. And it creates an unholy alliance with them, animal rights activists that also turn to politics for just more government control. And a lot of these groups, the irony is they have non-political educational sex that will offer some valid points and their ideas should always be debated. But it's unfortunate that a lot of governing institutions co-opt these movements and in turn create unholy alliances like these to just control our lives. Well, yeah, I live in Oregon. There's a lot of that seeming to go on in the state of Oregon. So um, I think we're becoming all a little too familiar with that idea. One of the things FAIR seems to be in favor of is abandoning factory farming, uh, but they don't really go to the point of saying they want to abandon farming entirely. So I'm going to give them at least some benefit of the doubt and say, let's go towards smaller farming, which seems to be a tie-in, at least to the Green New Deal, on the point of farming, and she goes into soil, health and soil conditions. I think there's a lot of political good intention in the Green New Deal, but a lot I mean, people who look at it say this is just craziness. Is it a stretch to say that FAIR isn't really interested even in small farming? I would say that... Uh, for um, just for a start, um, the monitoring of factory farms I think is valid, um, at least like from a private initiative standpoint. I mean that there's there's legitimate concerns about factory farming. Now I don't think it should require the state get completely involved in that, but you have seen like some free market responses with the development of like grass, like a lot of the grass fed beef movement. They've they've built. Um, a, a solid watchdog infrastructure for that. I don't know what FAIR's endgame is, but um, they might they may have very good intentions, but they might not realize the politicians that they will very likely ally with might have a completely different agenda. And that's what happens when you get political. When you start um, getting in bed with the government, you're going to deal with people that are very, very sociopathic and and very interested in control at the end of the day that they will go above and beyond whatever interest group they partnered with and use it to advance their own agendas and sometimes these interest groups 
uh, don't realize they opened up a Pandora's box that they never intended to do so in the first place. But that's the nature of politics in general. When you get political, you're going to catch the disease that comes with it, which is increased government growth and more control over people's lives. And that's why you, it's like a massive Frankensteinian experiment that will go completely wild when left unchecked. Jose, let's take a minute out for a word from my affiliate, D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan is, simply put, dedicated to selling simply the best foie gras, truffles, meat, game, and mushrooms to American gastronomes, whether they are at home or at the restaurant. One product I especially like to cook with is the rendered duck fat. It is similar to bacon fat, but has a smoother flavor and adds a wonderful richness to sautés or soups or even as an ingredient in warm salad dressing. And yes, you can make duck confit. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash d'artagnan to see the wide variety of items for your pantry and for your summer grill. It's coming! culinarylibertarian.com slash d-a-r-t-a-g-n-a-n or visit the link at the show notes page culinarylibertarian.com slash 26. Now, let's get back to the interview. So you you mentioned a Pandora's box, which I think is a really good illusion. Just for a second, let's look inside this box. If factory farming is eliminated, well, then along with the factory farming is all the jobs down the line that are going to go away along with that. So now we have a fight for 15, except you want to do it away with factory farming. So there isn't a McDonald's to hire the kid to say, do you want fries with that? Because you've eliminated meat. Is that just insanity? Am I, am I taking this to too much of an extreme, or is there some validity to a extreme overcorrection when politicians get involved in things they really shouldn't get involved in? That's not an extreme at all, um, because whenever you, if you were to like say eliminate factory farming, that's going to destroy tons of jobs and capital ultimately. That would be otherwise used for productive endeavors such as McDonald's and even mom and pop restaurants too because I think this could effectively impact a massive sector of the economy and a lot of regulations um Paul like I, as I mentioned before with the law of unintended consequences a lot of regulations sometimes have an impact beyond what the politicians envisioned so it's not a stretch to say this would have like second or third order effects in a lot of sectors of the U.S. economy. Well, it's, you know, it's funny because uh, Milton Friedman had made a comment in in some interview some while ago uh, mentioning that there, there ought to be some phrase that is representative of the opposite of the invisible hand, and he came up with the invisible foot of government, which <laughs> seems pretty apropos. And so, yes, I think it is, it, it's the invisible uh, foot or like an invisible iron fist at the end of the day. So, yep, it is a very 
appropriate analog. As you're writing your piece, I'm getting a sense that, you, and, and you mentioned smoking and drinking. So basically, we're looking at the government acting as a central planner, managing somehow, usually by taxation, anything that the human wants to consume smoking, drinking, now meat. We are blessed, and I'm going to misapply that phrase, with more than a few examples of how central planning flat out doesn't work. Uh, this, you know, These results, they seem not to be oriented for any other reason than ideology of the politician, and I think that that's a danger to begin with. Uh, do you foresee it possible that, like this, legisl- this senator in Tennessee who wants to ban individuals from drinking milk from their own cows, uh, is this going to just turn into a complete overlord state of everything we consume? Well, government does operate on slippery slope premises, unlike what a lot of your so-called political experts will tell you otherwise, because at this point, whenever you have such a massive state it just begs the question for whatever busy body politician comes into power. Like, why don't we regulate this? Why don't we regulate that? And we've already conceded so much ground, both culturally and politically, as far as what the state can can do in our lives, that you will see a complete nanny state in food affairs very soon. The Green New Deal, it'll probably get shot, shut down um, in this current Congress, because um, Democrats don't have a favorable makeup of Congress or the presidency that would sign it, but they've already floated the trial balloon idea. That's how progressivism works. It goes, it, it builds off of gradualist interventions and also the pitching of certain really crazy ideas that ultimately become normalized in the general culture. Yeah, I, I do see the the war on meat is is um, continuing slowly. It hasn't really concretized in the United States, but I could definitely see in the European Union, which already has monstrous amounts of government intervention in the economy, start to gain traction there there and make its way across the pond to the United States. You know, I I think that the presentation is something is just absurd as the Green New Deal is, as you mentioned, part and parcel of how, well, progressives, but maybe I'll even say politicians in general work. And so we're going to offer this completely idiotic proposal. And then while we're all talking about the shiny thing, in some back room, they're actually making deals that don't go quite that far, but still they're they're moving their line further and further and further up. So how does Joe Citizen address this? What what can you, what can I, what can anybody do about politicians who are just not listening to the people? Well, I'm of the opinion that you have to take a multi-pronged approach, both in the cultural and political sense. Um, I think we do need more investigative writers that are willing to expose these schemes and start putting forward the idea that we need a separation of food and state um, as far as like nutritional policy is concerned in the United States. The more writers, the more cultural figures you have and commentators, the better, because politics does flow downstream from culture. Now, on the political front, I think like we need more like food uh, freedom, single issue groups across the nation, 
at the local, state, and yes, even federal level if it comes to that, that are that get very active. I have considerable experience in the like Second Amendment lobbying realm as far as like local and state level lobbying is concerned. And it's a very effective way for those people that want to go the local route. Single issue lobbying is great for libertarians and um, other people to get involved. And I think that's the strategy of um, grassroots activism combined with cultural um, awareness is the way to go. I think you're probably right, but it also seems to me from a libertarian standpoint, a real conflict to be engaging in politics and politicians when, if we take the spooner side of things, there shouldn't be any of them to begin with. So it, it's, it's almost a, uh, it's, it's a tough thing to sort of square oneself with if we're going to have, but if we're going to have to have the government and they're not going away tomorrow, then some expression of concern is of course the right thing to do. I'm maybe cynical enough to think that if they're not going to get money for it, they're not going to care about it. Maybe that's not really true of all of them, but do you, do you see some hope for at least at, say, a state level for people uh, addressing their legislators and saying, hey, this is getting a bit out of hand? Is there hope there? I think you do raise some valid points, Dan. Um, a lot of conventional politics, from my experience, tends to be quite overrated as far as impacting political change is concerned. And like, especially like voting, if, especially if you vote in the two-party system, like at the federal level, you won't see much change, to be honest. But I think for like, if you're going to get involved in politics, in practice and in theory, certain state legislatures and municipalities can be receptive to certain forms of activism if they if it's done correctly. But as I mentioned before, this is like a cultural thing. Like this, these kind of political acts are essentially downstream from the culture. And I think that for libertarians that are concerned about whether their political efforts will yield anything, I think they should very likely build more of like, say, podcasts like this or um, news outlets or engage in investigative reporting that raises awareness of that stuff and then segue it into like, say, a political org at the grassroots level that raises awareness on this issue and that can change policy. I don't really see a lot of stuff at the federal level yielding much uh, results um, in the short term or even medium term for that matter. We have a really monstrously sized government in DC that is becoming more and more detached from the rest of the population. And you also just have a political culture in DC that really just doesn't care and trying to build consensus in a nation of more than 300 million people on the ideas of liberty seems kind of like a stretch at this point. So I think a more decentralized approach as well in politics that combines like grassroots lobbying or whatever, or what have you, might be the way to go. The way you can fight back though is through invest like investigative journalism exposing 
this stuff on social media, creating videos and and doing that kind of stuff. There's many ways to skin this cat. It's not just politics. Well, those are good points, and maybe maybe we should somebody with a podcast should do something about that. Uh, since I am a food show, I'm going to lighten this up a little bit, and I'm going to ask you some food questions. And and this is something. Uh, I've sort of taken a couple of ideas and made them my own. Uh, if you ever watched the show Inside the Actors Studio at the end, you'll have a rough idea of what you're getting yourself into. So first question is, of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, or umami, which one is your favorite? I would say salty. That's what I'm most used to. Like the, um, Because like when I um, was young, like growing up, like my family would always use like copious amounts of salt for like everything. So I'm pretty used to that. What's your favorite food? I would say like steak, specifically like fatty ribeyes. Oh, you're going to make the keto people very, very happy. What's your least favorite food? Ooh, that's a tough one. I would say like um, lettuce. What gets you excited? Um, Just like waking up every day because it's always filled with like new adventures, whether it's um, me trying to like expose like the latest like big government scheme or um, just or just going to like the gym just to get stronger and stuff like that. I see my life kind of as like a role playing game where I'm like leveling up. So yeah, that's a I, that's a great answer. I like that answer. What turns you off? Conformity. And that kind of segues into like um, my lifestyle that I just like to keep moving and anytime. I get become complacent or conform to something. I feel like I'm stagnant, um, like I'm stagnating, and I like to encourage other people to kind of uh, always push the envelope, both physically, um, intellectually. What sound do you love? I'd say like uh, birds chirping in the morning. Oh, that's nice. I agree. It's a, it's a great way to wake up. What sound do you hate? I'd say any type of like smartphone notification. That's actually become quite a pet peeve now, like especially at um in like coffee shops whenever like people's like phones go off simultaneously. It's pretty unnerving for for me starting to realize that. Yeah, well, in in a crowded place it can be rather it can be monotonous. Just, yeah, that's true. What is your favorite Food indulgence. I would say anything involving like cheese or like butter. And if it's like dows and like fat, like added fat, like coconut oil or whatever, that's kind of like my thing. Because yeah, I guess you, as you said, like, like the whole keto thing. So like any type of fat bomb, to be honest. Oh, nice. Yeah. Fat bombs are yum. All right. Well, it's, uh, I appreciate your time today. This was a Quick, short article, but it was a good one, and I will link to it at culinarylibertarian.com slash 26. Well, Jose, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure chatting with you, Dan. All right, folks, that's going to do it. You can find Jose's social media information, his Mises.org bio, and his newsletter link at the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 26. You heard Jose mention he does a lot of writing on the Second Amendment. He also has an ebook, Ten Myths of Gun Control, which you can pick up, and the link for that will also be on today's show notes page. The last bit of news is my ebook is done. Woohoo! It is a muffins e-cookbook, and you can pick it up also at the link on the show notes page. 
Just give me an email address and then you can download the book and start baking muffins for breakfast. And for that, I'll send you an email once or twice a week. Not too many. All right, that's it. I will see you next week. All right. Well, have a great afternoon in uh, Colorado. Is it snowing there? It snowed a bit yesterday, but um, this winter, the snow has been pretty tame. Well, we had more snow here than we are used to, to, in my experience, in Oregon. But they say it snows a lot. But I'm from northern Michigan, so I'm familiar with a lot of snow. Yeah, um, at least in Fort Collins, because I have some family like in Michigan and Ohio as well. The winters here are actually like really moderate um, and like snow like melts within like a day. So it's not like um, like it sticks for that long or really piles up. It's like on a rare occasion that you'll see like a blizzard. I've only been here for two and a half years and I'm very likely going to be moving back to Texas now that I'm location independent. So...